Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 26th, 2017. Now, I, I know it would be underwhelming if I said, I have made an executive decision. <laughs> You're like the only executive over at Pirate Christian Radio. I mean, that's no big deal. All right, yeah, you're, you're right, you're right. But I did make one. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually do the unthinkable. It's Crazy talk. We actually open up the Bible. Have you heard of this thing? Yeah, we open up God's Word to compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to. Whose books? Well, we need to be buying whose small group curricula and books we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. It's the weirdest thing, yeah. And uh, what we oftentimes find, and you know, more often than not, is that what people be saying about God and what He wills for us and what He wants us to believe, like, isn't that all what the Bible teaches? It's the strangest thing. I mean, how can one honestly, you know, look you in the eye and say, listen, I'm going to teach you what the Bible says. We here at Planet uh, Shifters Church of the Hillsong, we, we, we stand on God's word. And, and then, you know, they, um, every time they open it, they never read it in context. You don't actually get anything substantive. At all, it's a few verses strip mined from the Bible, or maybe one of those Old Testament stories, you know, a, a descriptive text that then turns into a prescription. And over and again, you don't actually learn from these people anything biblical. You know, I, it's the it's the weirdest phenomenon ever. And uh, and so we've been doing this for a long time, and I hate to say it, but uh, the problem is getting worse. And uh, this week's programming for Fighting for the Faith has been, how how do they say it on America's America's Got Talent? It's off the chain, you know, things like that. And uh, it's just been weird. So 
Let's talk about what we're going to do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Like I said at the opening, I have made an executive decision. That's right. I'm the only executive that makes decisions here at Fighting for the Faith. Anyway, you know, I'm <laughs> chief cook, bottle washer, you know, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, we, we've I've made an executive decision that uh, today's episode will also have no theme. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. I yeah, you know, was Tuesdays didn't have a theme. I was trying to pick up some scraps. And then as I was working through the things that I need to talk about on today's episode, I couldn't figure out how to theme it. So this is one of those oatmeal against the wall episodes of Fighting for the Faith. We're just going to take a big fat pile of yuck and then just throw it against the wall, see if any of it sticks and uh, note its behavior along the way. So to start things off, and man, I had to debate with myself how I wanted to do this. Uh, to start off things today, we are going to begin, get, yeah, get this, with a uh, a Stephen Furtick update. Now, we're going to wedge in a Jerry Falwell uh, Jr. of, um, <clears throat> of uh, Liberty University. We're heading over to listen to a part of Stephen Furtick's message from his just-concluded Liberty University convocation, where he and Elevation Church Worship Band went, and they did their concert thingy, and then uh, and then <laughs> Stephen Furtick tried to preach. And what he did is, well, you know, what he does best, narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known here as narcissus. And you're thinking, what on earth is it? Yeah, I know, narcissus is the reading of your love of yourself into the biblical text, making you the hero and basically working with this idea that the Bible in the Old Testament is a series of stories of people who discovered their dream destiny thingy, you know, and uh, and you too need to discover your dream destiny thingy. And so you can look at patterns and and parallels in their stories to compare them with yours to see how well you're doing in your progress of your dream destiny thingy. And of course, I mean, everybody knows it wasn't God who was the hero when it came to David and Goliath. It was uh, you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see, that's kind of the idea. It's it's a completely miserable way of reading scripture. And on top of it, it goes against who scripture says scripture is about. Yeah, no, I hate to break this to you. If you actually think that the Bible's about you, huh? It was fin- <laughs> it was finished long before your grandparents and great grandparents actually, you know, got together. Um, so no, it actually isn't about you. Uh, Jesus says to the Jews in the Gospel of John, "You diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them." you have eternal life, but they are the very scriptures that testify about me. Now, note, when Jesus said that, had a single word of the New Testament been written yet? No, not at all. Not not, not even one aleph, not one baith gimel daleth, not one nothing of the New Testament had been written when Jesus said those words. You diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them, you have eternal life, yet they are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yeah, that's right. The uh, Jesus said the Old Testament be about Jesus. Now, if you think the New Testament is about you, yeah, I don't know how to help you there. Because <laughs> it's not, you know. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but the four Gospels are really all about Jesus. He's the hero. He's the subject. He's the focus. And uh, and so the idea here is, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Furtick is one of these fellows who has just done a fine, fine, fine job of messing everything up. Now, and like I said, we'll get a little bit of um, Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, as a bonus. And the reason being, I want to play for you the audio. He recently had as a convocation um, <clears throat> Paula White's um, husband, Jonathan Kane of Journey, uh, do music and stuff there. Yeah, apparently he's now a crossover artist and is now doing Christian music. But uh, Paula White was there with her husband, Jonathan Kane, and this was just on the heels of the uh, <clears throat> of the inauguration of Donald Trump. And the things that he said were, wow. Yeah, so we'll actually technically start with that, but we'll, we'll put it under the bigger umbrella of a Stephen Furtick update. Why? Just because. You know, I make executive decisions here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, somewhere in there, we'll take a break. And then uh, then we are going to do a Joyce Meyer update. And we're going to ask the question with Joyce Meyer, is she trying to clean up her theology without having to admit that she was wrong and repent and warn people of the false doctrine she was believing? Yeah, that's the question we're going to just throw out there. You know, is Joyce Meyer trying to clean, just kind of sneak her way into uh, you know, better theology. Yeah, that's a good way to kind of put it. And uh, then we'll end up hour number one with a Joel Osteen update. <laughs> oh, man. Shazam. It's just going to be special. Anyway, so, yeah, that will be uh, hour number one. Then hour number two, we're going to head over to Narrate Church in Montana. Why? Because apparently I really love beating my head against a wall as I listen to an Adam Hushka sermon. So Adam Hushka, wow. I don't even know how to describe this. I mean, empty, hollow. I mean, what's more empty than empty? What's more hollow than hollow? What's more vapid than vapid? I mean, how I, I'm going to have to figure out descriptors to basically say, I don't know why anyone would wake up on a Sunday morning, you know, put on their Sunday best to go and listen to nothing. It was Nothing. Yeah, so it's like the nothing sermon. So uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I uh, strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. And uh, technically, we're going to begin with a Stephen Furtick update, and that requires us to do this. Sing along if you know it. pulpit like you are a man of God your hand strategically cut to the new style the beaver was making hot you had one eye on the camera as you watched the crowd applaud all of the pastors dreamed you their mentor, you'd be their mentor, and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you? 
University recently concluded convocation there with Stephen Furtick and the Elevation Church Worship Band. And uh, before we get to Stephen Furtick, we're going to listen to Jerry Falwell Jr. as he chastises critics of Paula White. Yeah, it's, it's a bonus thing if you would. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And uh, since we're going to begin with Jerry Falwell Jr., let me get to it. Here we go. Before I introduce you, well, now i got to explain to them what that means. They're, they're not booing me, Paula. They're saying Jerry. Jerry, okay. All right. <laughs> I, hope that, I hope that's true. Anyway, uh, before I introduce our, our speaker, I want, I want you to meet somebody who's become a dear friend of Becky and me this year. Paula White was... Paula White, dear friend, money-grubbing televangelist who literally squeezes money out of the poor and the oppressed in order to you know, live in luxury by promising them if they send in their seed offerings to her that God will bless them and make them prosper and heal them. Right, we've covered this many times here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, it, it's as if Jerry Falwell has no love of sound doctrine at all and doesn't even think it's important. The key people who, she, she, she exemplified what a Christian woman is all about. She, She's a wolf. She doesn't exemplify anything to do with being a Christian woman. The, I believe the Trump family loves evangelicals and what Christians stand for. Because of her witness. I mean, she she lived in the same building with them for years. She's just... Okay, just that sentence. I want you to think about this. Paula White lived in the exact same building as Donald Trump for years. Hmm. How much do you think that cost? Where did she get the money to do that? Answer, she got it by literally bilking you know, millions out of unsuspecting people who believe that she could release anointings and blessings and stuff like that because she's a money-grubbing televangelist. Antithesis of the angry feminist you saw marching. She, she loves men and women, not just women. And so she... So in other words, she's a godly woman, a godly Christian woman, because she has conservative politics. Right. 
And she showed, she showed the Trumps that all of us are not a bunch of Pharisees. It made me so mad there was a column before. Oh, yeah. Paula White. By being a money-grubbing televangelist and a woman pastor, which Scripture forbids, she was able to exemplify and model for Donald Trump that Christians aren't Pharisees. The inauguration uh, by one of those, I, I got to be nice, but, but anyway. Don't worry, he won't. Um, <laughs> no, I can't be nice. He's, he's one of these judgmental, pharisaical Christians accusing her of not, not believing in the Trinity or something. And so she, and I don't know if you noticed that the, at the swearing in in her prayer, she made it very clear. She prayed to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and put it in his face. I think his name was Lee Erickson or Eric Erickson. Or I don't know. Anyway, but. Uh, yeah, I, I told you that uh, I saw that article. And uh, I don't think he was correct in his assessment that she doesn't believe in the Trinity. And uh, when I noted what she prayed and how she specifically said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, she was doing that to kind of stick it to her critics. But, 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 but she showed the, the world that all of us are not judgmental. We're not, we're not self-righteous. That we're, we're... That, no, she showed the world that American evangelicalism has no biblical discernment and cares nothing about sound biblical doctrine or, or, and obeying what God has explicitly said in his word. Yeah, that's what Paula White has done. So I, I think you get the idea. It's quite the train wreck. And that was just the bonus piece. So uh, with that, let's uh, do what we started the segment to do. Let's uh, tune in as uh, Stephen Furtick is uh, preaching at convocation there at Liberty University because apparently they, they want to make sure that they demonstrate to the body of Christ and to all those pagans out there that they aren't Pharisees by inviting the worst Bible twisters, manipulators, and those who teach for shameful gain the things they ought not to teach. This will prove to the world we're not a bunch of Pharisees. Here's Stephen Furtick. This message today. I don't really so much... I want to preach a full-on sermon as I want to give an encouragement. And uh, I, want to, I want to speak. There's a story that came to my mind from the Old Testament. And uh, it's kind of at the end of Joshua's leadership of the nation of Israel. He's brought them into the land that God promised them. How many believe that there are some promises that God has made you that are going to come to pass in your life? Do I have any believers? Um, what? So at the tail end of the story of Joshua, something to do with me. It's it's been a while since Joshua wandered in the wilderness, and it's been a while since he marched around the walls of Jericho. And uh, it's interesting because he wants to give one more speech to the people before he leaves them. He wants to give them one more charge. And so he assembles them for a convocation service of sorts. And he tells all of the leaders to get together. And this is in Joshua 24, verse 1. It says, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. Everybody say Shechem. Just because it sounds kind of good to say Shechem. It's 
tell your neighbor Shechem. All right, now listen. It, it's it's not. Come on, it's 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 the name of the place. You know this. It's the name of the place, theology students. It's the name of the place where Abraham built an altar to God when God made him the promise that I'm going to bless your offspring. Now, that's kind of an important bit of data, all right? So, Furtick here in this Joshua 24 passage is drawing the connection between Shechem and the fact that this was the place where Abram built an altar after he received the promise regarding the seed of Abram who would, well, bless the whole world. And that seed is Christ. That offspring is Jesus. And so if you're going to draw, if you're going to connect those dots, you're going to have to connect them and point them to Christ. But let's see what Furtick is up to. Place was called Shechem. That was hundreds of years ago. But now Joshua, who has led the people into the very place that God promised Abraham, is bringing them back to the place where the promise was made to begin with. Now, a little bit of a note here. Read Hebrews 11. We covered this in a recent episode of Fighting for the Faith. The promised land um, that's in the Old Testament is type and shadow that points us to the promised land, which is the new earth. And so we got a problem here is that Hebrews 11 makes it clear that they did not receive the promises and that they were looking for a city whose builder is God. Mm -hmm. They were looking for a heavenly city. Read Hebrews 11. You'll see what I'm saying. So already Furtick is, well, his um, hermeneutic, his exegesis is slipping because his interpretation is not being governed by how Scripture tells us to understand what the promised land ultimately points to. Hmm, bad start. Because sometimes you have to go back to where you started to realize how far you've come. I wish somebody had told me this uh, when I first started walking with Christ, because I always had this view of, of spiritual progress, this, um, this idea that my relationship with God and my faith was, was going to grow. The way I saw it, I kind of thought it would be like a straight line. I thought that when I accepted Christ and received the Holy Spirit, that all of the steps of faith that I would take in my life, God would just take me higher and higher and higher. And you have these moments with God, these amazing moments with God in his presence. And you feel like nothing is ever going to be the same again. I, I remember being at my Christian college, North Greenville. Why is he talking about himself? Oh, yeah, because he thinks this is about him. And notice the sappy music playing throughout. He's, he brings his own band with him now, yeah. University, where I met my wife, and sometimes I would be sitting in chapel service, and I would hear a word from God, and it would shake me to the point where I thought, I'm never going to be the same again. I'm, I'm never going to struggle with fill in the blank of whatever sin you struggle with again. You, you kind of start off walking with God, 
expecting that your walk with him is going to feel kind of like this, just straightforward and up, just forward and up all of the time. But then you find out that there's this little thing called process. And to really see God's promises come to pass in your life, we were singing a song a minute ago about how I believe I'll see you do it again. I, I've seen you move the mountains and I believe I'll see you do it again. And I felt like there was a little message that somebody needed to hear today who is frustrated with your progress. And what I want to tell you that I wish somebody had told me is that spiritual progress does not look like a straight line. Stop expecting it to. Stop thinking that you're finally going to pray the prayer or finally going to attend the service or finally going to experience the breakthrough, get the relationship or the opportunity that is going to end the, the struggle. Spiritual progress is not a line. It's more like a loop. Would you do this with me real quick? Everybody in the whole uh, Vine Center, just do this real quick. All, all the way to the top. Everybody just... Spiritual progress is like a loop? How are you getting that from Joshua 24? This real quick. I want to encourage you today to stay in the loop. Stay in the Why? Because you invented a new doctrine regarding Christian progress that it's like a loop, so we need to stay in the loop? Keep doing it. I'm not. I'm not done with my illustration. Yeah, <laughs> stay in the loop. Look at your neighbor. Say, stay in the loop. Stay in the loop. Now, see. Remember, Joshua had to fight a lot of different battles. You can stop now. Joshua had to fight a lot of different battles in order to come to this place. He had to. He had to wander in the wilderness because Moses wouldn't give him permission to go into the promised land. I love. I love preaching at Liberty. Moses didn't give the people permission to go into the promised land. Oh, Moses, can we go into the promised land now? No, please. No. Uh, when? I'll tell you when. Uh, no wonder Moses had to die before they went into the promised land. See, your Moses has to die. Or you can get into your promised land, too. Oh, you just can't make this stuff up. And all of these dumb, dumb exegetical errors are due to the fact that Stephen Furtick is not interested in exegeting attacks and telling people a word from God's word, the written word. No, he thinks he has a better word, you know, and so he can improve on the Bible. That's what's going on. I have to share all the background because all the kids know their Bible so good. You could just get right straight to the practical application. Joshua has spent decades going around in circles, but now he's in the land that God has promised. But he brings the people back together one more time and he brings them back to Shechem. Shechem. If y'all were 36 years old like me, I would hit you with a, a little uh, biggie. I'm going, going. Back, back to Shechem, Shechem. But I don't know anything about that. Elijah, they don't know anything about that. That's the most excited you got this whole time. 
Yeah, playing to the audience a wee bit, don't you think? And, and he gives them a speech. He, he brings them back to Shechem, back to the place where the promise was originally made. And he has a... Ch- yeah, which promise? The promise of the seed of Abraham, whom all the earth, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise of Jesus, the promise of a savior. Uh-huh. Because he's speaking to a generation of people who did not see all the miracles with their own eyes. They heard about them, but they didn't see the Red Sea part. They didn't see how God provided shoes that wouldn't wear out in the wilderness. They didn't see it. And one thing I've learned being a parent is very difficult to try to explain something to someone who didn't see it in a way that they truly appreciate it. It's hard for me to tell my kids about Nintendo games. Um, They have Nintendo emulators. I mean... Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I know kids today who play Nintendo. Just saying, okay, so what we're going to have to do, we're going to have to pause right there for our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. A little bit more Stephen Furtick. Then we got some Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here, again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond. Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you.
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that reading yourself into the biblical text will cause you to miss the whole point. Verdict has missed it several times already. The point is Jesus. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then after that, Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to make... A uh, one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button there at our website, or you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's uh, head back to Liberty University and their convocation with Stephen Furtick. Recently done, by the way. And uh, you'll notice, you know, the promise was made at Shechem. The promise of what? What promise? What promise? You know, it's like, he, it's like, remember that game when you were a kid, you know, your dad or your mom would hide something and then, you know, you have to go find it and they'd say, oh, you're, you're getting warmer. You're getting warm. Oh, you're burning up. Oh, you're burning hot. And then you'd walk away from it because you still can't figure out where it is. You know, oh, it's getting, oh, you're freezing now. You're really, really cold. It's like doing, it's like, it's kind of like watching Furtick do that. You know, it's like he, he's getting warmer. He's getting warmer. He's getting close to actually talking about Jesus. But he keeps talking about himself. It's like, oh, no, getting colder, really cold. Whoa, you're freezing, dude. Chris gave me the best. Christmas gift ever this year. He gave me a, what is it called? A Nintendo simulator classic. And it had all the games on it. And, and I, I was finally able to show my boys the legend of Zelda and super Mario brothers. And uh, yeah, it sounds like everybody in the room has played these games. Yeah. Why are we talking about this? We played Contra for a minute, and I, I had to show them the cheat code for Contra. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. 
See, if you never did that, that means nothing to you. But for some of you, that's a religious symbol if you saw it with your own eyes. But Joshua knows they didn't see it. So I've got to, I've got to speak to him one more time. And he gathers them together at Shechem, the place where God made a promise to one man. But it's not just one man anymore. Now it's a whole nation. Now God has blessed them to possess the land that they used to pass through. And he wants them to see how far God has brought them. I wonder, have you stopped by Shechem lately to see how far God has brought you? Or are... Let me kill my Moses first, and then I'll see if I can pass by Shechem to see how far God is brought. Talk about utterly missing the point. I mean, it was right there. It was teed up for him. What was the promise given to Abraham? (laughs) Was it that he would, you know, have better sex, that, uh, (laughs) that, that he would experience life change in community? Uh, with with his vision casting leader, no, it was that his offspring would be the one through whom the whole world would be blessed. And ah, yeah, I think you get the point. Total train wreck, and all of this is caused by the fact that Stephen Furtick continues to obstinately believe the Bible's about you and him. It's not. It's about Jesus and what he does. For you, the promise was for a savior. Yeah, sad that he didn't get that. Moving along. Yep, time for a Joyce Meyer update. You got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy. Up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum. Have faith or pandemonium, liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate my last remark, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark. What did they do just when everything looked so dark? Man, they said we better accept. She went to positive yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, one of the positive faith, word of faith heresy folks out there is Joyce Meyer. She is not a sound exegete. She is a twister of God's word and somebody that should be marked and avoided at all costs. Uh, if you are a pastor, you should not be permitting the women in your church to have Joyce Meyer Bible studies, unless, of course, you really think that a little bit of arsenic never hurt anybody, especially doctrinal arsenic. So we're going to head over to her studios as she is going to be interviewing one of the members of her board. I believe it's Paul Osteen. And uh, Joyce Meyer and her are going to be discussing um, the, the, well, you know, how we can claim our healing, but that doesn't always mean that we're going to receive a miracle. And so I, I point this all out because as I was watching this segment, I just had to ask, is she trying to figure out how to clean up her doctrine 
and theology without actually having to publicly repent and to, well, tell people that she was wrong. And so uh, with that, we're going to get to it. Here is Joyce Meyer and her guest, Dr. Paul Osteen, the brother of Joel. Here we go. Well, it's so encouraging to hear testimonies like that and to realize that Jesus is our healer. And you know what? He still heals today, and he can heal in many different ways. No one knows that better than my guest, Dr. Paul Osteen. Dr. Paul is a general surgeon who spends many months each year on the mission field, as well as serving with his brother, Pastor Joel Osteen, at Lakewood Church in Houston. Well, Paul, it's good to have you with us today. Good to be here, Joyce. We love you. Thank you. We love you. You're on our board, and we appreciate that. Uh, You know, Paul, the thing that's been on my heart is to really help everybody understand that Jesus is interested in their health and not just our spirit, Mm -hmm. but in every area of our lives, our mind, our emotions, every area. So Jesus is interested in in all of us. Jesus, it takes a holistic approach when it comes to his interest in us. I don't have a problem with that. That's true. And uh, for me, finding out that Jesus would heal me emotionally was a, a life changer. And I spent a lot of years in church, never knew that. Mm -hmm. And he also wants to heal us physically. Now, um, he wants to heal us physically? Hmm. I would say that ultimately Jesus promises all of us perfect health and a total healing. You're thinking, Rosebro, have you become a word of faith guy? Nope, I haven't. I base it on this concept, and that is that when you read the scriptures, it's clear that our future as Christians is the resurrection. We're going to live forever as human beings in a resurrected body. No pain, no suffering, no death, none of that. No, it's new creation. God, Christ himself says, behold, I'm making all things new. So when she talks about God wants to heal us, I, we got to be careful because it is not always God's will that we are healed in this creation, in this current creation under the curse. Mm-hmm, the wages of sin is death. We're all heading to the grave. So it is not always God's will to heal you here and now. And uh, so, you know, I, I note that because that's some that's already she's slipping, but she's trying to engage in some kind of equivocation. But we'll explain along the way. When I first started kind of coming up in the word movement, I learned about miracles and healings and that God would would do miracles. Uh, but then I got a little bit confused at some point. She's a uh, disciple, I think, of Kenneth Hagin and you know, came up through the word uh, faith heresy. So notice we, what she's saying here that, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's some issues, if you would. We continue. Because I didn't always see that happening. And so, you know, I've learned over the years that. He- now, I'm going to back it up just a little bit because I want you to hear what she says. She says she was confused. Let me back it up just ever so slightly so you can hear. She talks about her past in the Word of Faith heresies. Uh but then I got a little bit confused at some point because I didn't always see that happening. And so, you know, I've learned over the years that he does miracles, he does healings, but also he works through doctors, he works through medicine. Uh-huh. So she heard in the word of faith heresy 
that God wants to heal us and that he performs miracles and stuff like that. But she was confused because in her own life, she didn't see that always play out. Hmm. Notice what she should be saying here is that I was taught false doctrine. I was falsely taught by Ken Hagen, you know, name the, the heretic, right? I was falsely taught that God will always heal when I speak my words and name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. And, and she says, instead she says, I was confused. I was confused because I didn't always see that happen. I was confused. No, you were deceived. You were deceived and taught false doctrine. What you need to be doing at this point, Joyce, is saying, listen, the preacher or teacher who tells you that God will always heal you is not speaking the truth. Now, I find it fascinating that her guest is Dr. Paul Osteen. Where, what is it that uh, Joel Osteen does constantly? Joel Osteen is constantly telling people, you, you, you got to you know, say it with your words, believe big and all this kind of stuff. He also teaches the word of faith heresy. So I'm noting here that this alliance between Joyce Meyer and Paul Osteen, I think is telegraphing that there is a shift taking place quietly without that. They're not trying to draw attention to it where they're going to try to step away from some of the false doctrine. They were taught and believed in the word of faith heresy, they're going to try to start to clean things up, but not point anybody to the fact that they were teaching false doctrine or had believed false doctrine. It works through one of the things that I've discovered in my life is sometimes I'll have something going on and I'll pray about it and God will show me something that I need to change. And so why don't you talk to us a little bit and tell us what I know your mom had a great miracle, so why don't we maybe start with that? Like, Yeah, Joyce, there's, there's no doubt that God is Jehovah Rapha. He's the Lord, our healer. I like to think about it like this, that all healing originates with God. That's right. And whether it comes through medicine or whether it comes through supernatural healing, it originates from God. And you know, I tell people, don't look to me for your healing. Yeah. Look to God. But, you know, it's an interesting story with my mom. In 1981, uh, at 48 years of age, she was diagnosed with um, metastatic uh, adenocarcinoma to her liver. That means a tumor had broken off somewhere in her abdomen and had gone to her liver, and she had multiple lesions in her liver. And she weighed 89 pounds. She was jaundiced. She was weak. She had fever. Um, very, very sick. And they did a biopsy, a needle biopsy of that uh, liver tumor, one of the liver tumors, and at a good hospital in Houston. I mean, these are reputable, great hospitals in Houston. It was clearly cancer. So there's no doubt in my mind that she had uh, cancer in her liver, metastatic from somewhere else. And and uh, really, back then, uh, there was absolutely no proof that chemotherapy or radiation or any kind of treatment helped prolong right. survival or disease-free interval, as we call it. So my mom and dad, you know what? They left the hospital and they said, Jesus, we're in your hands. And, and they knew this tra truth that we're talking about, that Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, is still our healer, mm -hmm. and that Jesus demonstrated that 2,000 years ago. He showed us the nature and character of God by touching and healing people. And so... On December the 11th, they got down on the floor of their bedroom, and my dad prayed, and my mom just, as it were, received her healing. Mm -hmm. Not much changed, but you know what? She received her healing that day. Mm -hmm. And so, but then she started getting better, right? Yeah. Now, notice there, um, she didn't receive a miraculous healing. She received her healing and slowly started to get better. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So I find this, again, a very fascinating segment. And I'm just wondering, are they trying to find a way to distance themselves from the false teaching that God always heals? We continue. Joyce, I think my mom demonstrates some really great things. She did four things I think that are important. First is this, that she, she found where it was written in, in God's Word. Yeah. There's lots of scriptures, but she has, about, I think, 55 healing scriptures that she began to read and meditate on. Uh, throughout the right. day. And yeah. she still does that even yeah. to this day. That's good. But number one, she got the word in her. And uh, one of the things we always say at our church is put God's word in you when you don't need it so it'll come out of you when <laughs> no, you do that's need good. it. That's- yeah, if you really actually believe that, that you need to put God's word in you when you don't need it so it'll be in you when you need it, um, then Joel Osteen would be like an amazing exegete and would be known for you know preaching large swaths of the word of God in context and really telling the story of scripture and letting the word speak for itself. Instead, he's always ripping verses out of context from multiple translations and paraphrases, Rick Warren style, and filling people's heads with pretty much nonsense, not the word of God. But the second thing she did is she forgave or, or she asked for forgiveness. Yeah. She thought maybe she'd offended people, her children, different people. I love the fact that... Hmm. That makes you wonder. I mean, was she thinking that the reason she had cancer was a punishment from God? Hmm. Mom, Mom tried to clear her heart. Right. You know, get rid of anything that she had against anybody. And then another thing I think was key to her healing is she put pictures up of herself when she was healthy. Oh, that's good. So she had a picture. Mm, yeah, she vision boarded, man. Yeah, she put pictures of herself up when she was healthy. And see, that's one of the keys to her healing is she was building a positive image of the future So and, and exercising her faith for it. Yeah. Yeah, this is weird. And she was in her wedding dress in a picture when she was riding a horse in Montana. That's good. So when... On her mirror, she put those pictures. So she had a choice to either look at how she was or look at how she wanted to be. Right. So Joel calls it a vision of victory. Yeah. I hear you preach so many times. Yeah, Joel calls it a vision of victory, not God's word, because the God's word doesn't teach this. Get a vision of where right. God wants to take you. And so she, she chose to look at those pictures. And then the last thing she did, I thought that was so important. Even when she was sick, when she was weak, when she was tired, when she didn't felt like other people should be waiting on her, she got in her car and she went and she prayed for as many people as she could. That's awesome. You know what? It didn't happen. Yeah, it sounds to me like she was trying to earn her healing, you know? Weird. And overnight, but over time, my mom began to regain strength, regain her health, and she will turn 83 this October. So I think that's it's 35 awesome. years later. So see, that's one of the things I want people to understand is a miracle is something that happens right now. Yeah. But uh, a healing, which it's still a miracle, but that was something where she received by faith and then she had to continue standing and believing and she... She had to continue standing and believing. Huh. So notice they're trying to make some tweaks in their doctrine here. So God doesn't always miraculously heal, but 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 he heals... Um, but you've got to stand in your faith and, and, you know, use your faith to make this happen kind of thing. Interesting. Did those handful of things that she felt like that God showed her to do. And then little by little, gradually, she began to see a difference. Now, she chose not to take chemotherapy. But like for me, when I had breast cancer several years ago, 
I had the choice of either just standing firm and just trusting God for a miracle or having a surgery, which I wasn't real crazy about having, because then they did pretty radical Mm -hmm. stuff. That's been 27 years ago. And uh, I really felt like that I was supposed to have the surgery. So each time that you're trusting God for a healing, you need to look to him to show you what direction he wants you to take. But mm-hmm. And what if you're trusting God for a healing and you're going to die? You know, I, I think of, you know, Eddie Long. You know, I think of uh, Tammy Faye Baker. Yeah, they were trusting God for a healing and they ended up in the grave, you know. So here's this miracle. Mm-hmm. You, you saw that. But yet you operate on people all the time. So tell us about the other side of it where you do need the medical help. Why don't you tell us about the other side of it, Paul, where people receive medical help and even that doesn't save them. They don't receive a healing, even though they're believing God for one, even though they have a vision of victory and all this kind of stuff. Why don't you tell us about that? Again, fascinating discussion here they're being very careful they're trying to figure out how to how to weasel out of what they've taught in the past without having to jettison it all together it's you know so mm-hmm. yeah the problem is this nowhere in the bible does it say god promises to heal you all the time doesn't matter and it doesn't matter if you believe for a healing that in or you have a vision of victory nowhere are these doctrines taught as somehow activating God's healing power in your life. So, uh, yeah, so she's noticing that, you know, I'm, I'm confused. I'm confused. Certain things aren't adding up. But the, the thing is, is that the, the, what she's teaching and what Paul Osteen is teaching is not biblical. And if you believe in these lies, you are running the risk of shipwrecking your faith because your faith isn't in a real promise given from God. Your faith is in a false promise given by a false teacher. And then when it doesn't come about as you were led to believe that it would, because I, after all, I mean, I have visions of victory for my life. And as you're heading towards your grave, you know, and, you know, you still haven't received your healing, but you've by faith received it and you get worse and worse and worse and you're one breath away from the grave. You're no longer trusting in Jesus. You're fearing that you've done something wrong. And you have. The thing you've done wrong is listen to a false teacher and a wolf and believe a false gospel and false promises that God never made. Moving along. Yep, time for a Jill Osteen update. Sad as I can be. All by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle, just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle, and beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten, just like the Christmas tree. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Shiny Teeth and Me. Yeah, that's right. Joel Osteen and Shiny Teeth and Me. Actually, that's Chip Skylark. 
It's our Joel Osteen update music. So uh, we're heading over to Lakewood, and uh, we're going to listen to Joel Osteen and his message titled The Open Windows of Heaven. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to note here that uh, Joel Osteen is going to teach that um, your tithing, your giving will give you an advantage with God when it comes to receiving healing and prosperity and stuff like that. Yeah, it'll give you an advantage by opening up the windows of heaven. Wish I were making that up. Here's Joel Osteen. God bless you. It's a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. I like to start with something funny. And I heard about this family that lived way back in the woods. They never left their little town, never watched television. One day they took a vacation to New York City. The father was showing his son a famous skyscraper. and They were so impressed. They were especially intrigued by the elevator. They didn't know what it was. This elderly woman walked up and pushed a button. The walls opened up. She stepped into a little room. The walls closed back up. They sat there contemplating what they had just seen. In a few seconds, the same walls opened back up and a beautiful 24-year-old girl stepped out. <laughs> Almost in disbelief, the son said, Dad, what just happened? He said, I don't know, son, but go get your mother. <laughs> Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I am about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. I'll never be the same. Never, never, never. I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. God bless you. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. In verse 10, you're welcome to. You probably know the scripture, Malachi 3 and verse 10. While you're turning, don't forget, we have our big Super Bowl celebration, gospel concert coming up the Friday before Super Bowl. This afternoon at 2 o'clock, a great Spanish-speaking service. 7 o'clock, Pastor Nick and Summer, a couple thousand young adults right here. Wednesday night, John Gray, what a great minister, and all of our youth programs on Wednesday night. But I mentioned the Monday night Bible study. Anyway, one last favor I always ask. Please stay to the very end unless you have to go to work or catch a plane or something just so we can keep the house in order without any walking around. But again, honored to have you here today. I want to talk to you today about the open windows of heaven. We all come to places in life where we reach our limits. We've the, the open windows of heaven. Gone as far as our education allows. The medical report says we're not going to get well. We've tried to break the addiction, but haven't been able to do it. So notice, he's, he noted, the, the doctor says you're not going to get well. That means you're going to die. It's easy to settle where we are and think that it's never going to change. But the scripture says in Malachi, when you honor God with your giving, he will open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings that you cannot contain. Vague reference there to Malachi chapter 3. Um, note here, um, Malachi is a prophecy written to the people of Israel. 
Um, and the Mosaic Covenant was still in effect, and the tithe was a Mosaic Covenant tax, if you would, to sustain the ongoing work at the temple. It began in the tabernacle, became the temple. So it was a a state tax for the purpose of, you know, uh, of, well, addressing the needs of the temple. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore... Uh, o children of Jacob, are, are not, oh, you are not consumed from the days of your fathers. You have turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your offerings or contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The curse there being referred to is the curse, curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, notice it says bring it into the storehouse. It doesn't say put it in the bucket at your church. That's right. The new covenant does not have a command to tithe. You give what you decide in your heart. God loves a cheerful giver. You do not get at, give out of compulsion Whereas the maintenance of the temple, there was a tithe established by God, and they gave out of compulsion, not out of the willingness of their heart. So you are cursed with a curse, you who are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that you will not, uh, it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Uh-huh. So you'll notice it's addressing the people of Israel, not a church. Nope. Now, granted, we are grafted into Israel, but Jesus is Israel down to one. And the Mosaic Covenant is uh, no longer in force. It has been abrogated. It's been fulfilled by Christ. It has been done away with. It has come to an end. So we're not under the Israeli, ancient Israeli tithe. No, we in the New Testament do not give out a compulsion. We set aside what we uh, want in our, you know, what we want to, you know, give. And that is decided within our own heart, knowing that it is God's will that Christ's preachers and teachers and those who are doing uh, vocational ministry are to be supported in their preaching of the gospel, make a living from it. That's what God's word says. Mm -hmm. So notice how Joel Osteen set this up then. Did you get a report from your doctor that you will never get well? Mm -hmm. That means you're going to die. Quick. Write a check, give a tithe. God will open the windows of heaven. That's literally the logic that's being employed here. It's fascinating um, because, you know, the discussion we just heard from Joyce Meyer and Paul Osteen. You may have reached your limits on your own. There are obstacles you can't seem to overcome. The good news is you're not on your own. No, the good news is that Christ has died for our sins. That's the good news. Because you're a giver... Because you're honoring God, you are under the open windows of heaven. Uh, So you give to God in order to earn from God. Mm. 
Yeah, that's not what Scripture says. If you'll get your passion back, start believing again, start expecting again, God is going to rain down favor, rain down good breaks, rain down abundance. The medical report... Where in Scripture does it say that? Where in Scripture does it say, if you will do that, that God will rain down favor and things like that? I'm not familiar with that text. may not look good, but under the open windows of heaven, healing is raining down. God can do what medicine cannot do. He has the final say. You may have gone as far as you can in your career, but under the open windows of heaven, increase is raining down. Divine connections, opportunities. You haven't been able to break that addiction. Don't accept it as the way it's always going to be. You have an advantage. You're under the open windows of heaven. It's just a matter of time before he, before wholeness rains down. Before- mm-hmm. So you have an advantage because you're a tither. Yeah, uh-huh. I, that's not what the scriptures say. Now, what is the reason why God meets our needs? Is it because we tithe? Now, I, I just I ask the question because, you know, I think of somebody like Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is not a Christian. Nope, he is a Buddhist, and yet he's a pretty wealthy fellow. Donald Trump, <laughs> a, a pornographer, serial adulterer. Yeah, he owns a casino. Kind of get the idea there, right? Um, Donald Trump, um, he seems to be like uber blessed as far as his finances are concerned. Um, do you think it's because he's been a tither his whole life? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I really don't think that's the reason. In fact, I would like to read out a psalm for you that demonstrates that God cares for His creation out of His fatherly goodness. Yeah. The psalm in question is Psalm 104. I'm going to read it out in its entirety. Here's what it says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. Sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your hand. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face to shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. And so you'll notice here, already we're beginning to see this theme, that God literally cares for his creation as its creator. And it's this kind of then taps into this theology that God is Father 
You, you see, the reason God meets your needs is because you are his child. You are his creation. In fact, Scripture is clear that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And so what Joel is saying, that you have an advantage, oh, because you're a tither? No, actually, that's not what Scripture teaches. And it's, he's teaching that you earn your healing, you earn your blessings, you earn your prosperity by your giving. Psalm 104 teaches that God cares for us out of his fatherly, loving kindness. And he cares for all of his creations. You think that the livestock tithe? Yet, no, no, they don't. Yet God feeds them, right? The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, verse 16, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He makes the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it's night, Then, when all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for they prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out in his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships, the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. And these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, but let the wicked be no more. Blessed be the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So, Psalm 104 teaches us that God cares for his creation, including humans, out of his fatherly, loving kindness. And he opens up his hands to meet the needs and to feed his creation. And that's the idea. Joel Osteen is saying, well, you know, hey, you know, you got that report, you know, from the doctor. And he says, you're not going to get better. But don't worry, you you have it in with God because you're a tither. No, this is not what scripture says. Down before freedom rains down. But sometimes we think we're at a disadvantage. We don't have the talent we need. We don't have the connections, the experience. Joel, if I was taller, if I had a better personality, if I knew the right people, then I could be successful. If you think you're at a disadvantage, you will live at a disadvantage. If you think lack, you're going to have lack. Uh, word of faith heresy that you, apparently your thoughts create reality. Instead of thinking I'm at a deficit, I'm lacking, turn it around. I'm under the open windows of heaven. I have everything I need. Yeah, I'm under the open windows of heaven because I sent a check to Lakewood Church, care of Joel Osteen. An abundance of talent, an abundance of ideas, abundance of strength, abundance of health. 
Get rid of a lack mentality and have an abundant mentality. You may not have seen it yet, but don't worry. Your time is coming. God is about to do something unusual, something extraordinary, something that you haven't seen. Yeah, God doesn't promise that. And the people you've described, you know, one of them have, they've received the report that they're not going to get better. And you're promising them that God's going to heal them because they've tithed, but that God doesn't promise that. And so you're not teaching them the truth. And then they're going to get confused like Joyce Meyer. I'm confused. I, I thought positive thoughts. I received my healing. Why didn't, why didn't it come? Now I'm, I, I have to die. But, 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 but I, I thought positive things and, and why didn't I get my healing the way Joel Osteen promised that God would give it to me? Oh, the answer is simple. God never promised those things. Joel Osteen is a wolf. He twisted God's word and taught something that it doesn't teach. He made a promise for God that God is not obligated to keep because God himself never made that promise. See the problem? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, heading over to Narrate Church in Helena, Montana. Because, <laughs> you know, beating my head against a brick wall is so fun. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? 
Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Let's do this right. The Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, TED Talk, I don't know what this is. Uh, comes to us via Narrate Church, Helena, Montana, Adam Hushka presiding. The name of the sermon series is Give and Take. The name of the sermon is How Staying Motivated. Yeah. So the question is, how do you stay motivated to give? What What are the, you know, how do you figure this out? And Adam Hushka, no joke, it's going to take him a long time to go to the Bible. And he's going to even, in his own words, note how dangerous what he's doing is. But that didn't apparently dissuade him from doing what he's doing. Yeah, I wish I was making that up. So let me back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Adam Hushka. Give and take. How? Staying motivated. Here we go. So I'd like to start by uh, stating something that you might find offensive, but trust me on it is because you're not supposed to do this. But I figured since we're in that season where we're doing it all the time, I'll do it anyway, which is to suggest that there are really two types of people in the room. Kind of, you're not supposed to do that. But what I'd like to suggest is that there's really two types of people in the room. And yeah, why aren't you starting off with the offense of the cross? Yeah, stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Greeks. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, weird. And those of you that go like, why would you mess with the E on the gas gauge? Like we, we kind of break over that point, right? Like there are some of you. I, I've, I've... What? We're going to talk about those who take risks regarding the fuel in their car and the E on the gas gauge? Really? I know some of you. I've talked to some of you. I've seen some of you. I have a wife who's one of you who uh, like – you, you know, like, how many millimeters underneath the E that little arm on your gas gauge can get before you're actually out of gas, right? Like, or, or some of you, when, you, when the light comes on, you're like, light. I got two more gallons when the light comes on. Yeah, while we're dealing with such a profound topic, why don't we talk about, you know, where do those missing socks go? You know, when you, you, you do the laundry and, you know, you put in, you know, two socks, you know, a, a real pair and... And they cease to exist anymore. You know, yeah, that's you know, one of them disappears, and now you have a sock without a mate for like eternity. I'd like to know where those socks go. Or some of you, when you, when the light comes on, you're like, light. 
I got two more gallons when the light comes on. And maybe you're one of those who got a new car, and now when the light comes on, the computer actually tells you how many miles, and that was super anticlimactic for you. Like, all the fun was gone. Until you realize the computer's wrong. Right? There are 0.3 more miles of gas in the tank after the little computer says you're going to be empty. And then there's others of you who, right, you're like, you you don't mess with the E. Like, why would you do that? There's lots of risks worth taking in life. Lots of times where you should take risks, but not then. Now, the the other piece of this is I think living in Helena kind of messes with that dynamic a little bit, right? Because I'm I'm sure you'll be surprised to know this, but I'm the, like, don't mess with E guy. Like, just play it safe with E. There's just, there's... But even in Helena, I find myself doing it because worst case scenario is what? You walk three blocks, so it's, it's kind of tempting. So I think the ultimate test is a road trip. Because like, some of you, the sense of satisfaction you feel when you get to the end of the road trip and you couldn't drive another mile. Right? Like Some of you, the sense of satisfaction you feel when you get to Spokane and there's like not a drop of tank, gas left in the tank. It- this, this is a sermon. People woke up on a Sunday morning to go and hear this pablum. It's kind of amazing. Like you, you, you just feel like you conquered the world because, you, like, never mind, you passed gas stations like crazy on the way there, right? Like, you even stopped and got a snack at a gas station, but you're like, I don't have to, I don't have to top off. Why would I top off? It's gonna take, it's not gonna take you any extra time. But some, some of you, that's your deal. And then others of you, you ride shotgun with these people. And you're going like, the last two hours have been a disaster. I can't even think straight anymore because you've been a nervous wreck just staring at the gas gauge, right? So, so there's those two extremes. So here's, here's what I want to do. is uh, with- They've exchanged the reading and understanding and exegeting of God's word for this crowd. Yeah. And then how many of you, what's funny is in every couple, there's one of you. Uh, <laughs> which of you are like, why, why do you do that? Spokane is so much less enjoyable when you do that. Yeah. Last question. How many of you have been in a vehicle at some point in your life that ran out of gas? That's kind of funny, isn't it? I actually, um, when I was in high school, my dad bought me a 1965 Impala, and one of the first weekends I decided I was going to tinker with it, and for whatever reason I decided to tinker with the gas tank because it looked to me like it wasn't hanging very securely. So the first time I ever ran out of gas was when I was pulling out of the high school parking lot, and the gas tank fell out of the 65 Impala, and it was like, what was that loud thud? And I looked in the rearview mirror, and my gas tank was sliding down Main Street. And ironically, a woman came up to me after the first gathering, and she said, my husband and I had a 1965 Impala, and the same thing happened to us. So it turns out it might just not be that I just don't have any mechanical skill. Uh, I say all that because some of you, maybe this is your first uh, time you've been with us in this conversation, give and take. And the question that I really want to ask this morning, and, and I'll try to bring us This conversation, apparently he doesn't think he's preaching a sermon. He's having a conversation. And I had a 1965 Impala, and the same thing happened to us. So it turns out it might just not be that I just don't have any mechanical skill. Uh, I say all that because some of you, maybe this is your first uh, time you've been with us in this conversation, give and take. And the question that I really want to ask this morning, and, and I'll try to bring us back to it at the end as well, is uh, as, as we talk about giving and taking, uh, both as kind of a type of a person and a temperament, but more so like when we move into and out of a mentality, the question I want to ask is why is it that some people run out of gas in their giving? And why is it that others can keep going? Like, to, to keep it in the positive, what, what are the secrets? And what I want to look at this morning is really the social science first, to be honest with you. It's a little bit uncomfortable for me, but we're going to do it anyway, uh, because we're going to look at the text second, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Oh, he's a little uncomfortable because he's not going to actually look at the biblical text first. 
yeah, I, I think he might be feigning, uh, you know, his uncomfortableness because, um, you know, he he doesn't seem to be one of these guys that really labors over a text so that he can properly exegete it. He seems to always be engaged in having some kind of a conversation. You know, those conversations are so important. But, uh, you know, exegeting a biblical text, rightly handling it, showing the proper distinction of law and gospel as it comes up through the text, uh, you know, that doesn't seem to be on his list at all. Um, And then, you know, careful attention to the biblical languages so that he can convey the proper sense of what it is that God's Word says. Again, just never seems to be something that's a high priority for uh, Mr. Hushka. But we continue. Like some of you, you work in a field. And, and whether, it's, whether it's medicine or law or, or banking, whether you're a nurse or a teacher or a barista at a coffee shop, you see there are two types of people you work with. There are those types of people who started in that career path because they genuinely wanted to serve people. They wanted to love students. They wanted to love patients. They wanted to change someone's day with a nice cup of coffee. And then there's others people. So there's some who started that way and they hate people now. And you're like, why do you still do this? And the reason is because they have a mortgage. And then there's others people you teach with them and you're amazed because they're 30 years in and they still genuinely care about students. I guess the question I want to ask is what, what can we learn? Because what I know about you and I know about myself is we want to be among that group that still cares about people when we're signing a loan for them. We want to be among the, the group that cares. So what's the secret to this? You, do you literally think you've discovered the secret to this? And it's not found in the Bible? Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. We continue. It's about people when, when, when we're putting an IV in their arm, but we also recognize it's not easy. So, so what do they know? You know, there, there's the career piece, and we talked last year about no matter your career, uh, that, that there's an opportunity to make it your, your vocation, which means no, any career, maybe all legal careers, we need to say, can, can be rendered a service unto God, if you will. That there's also relationships, I mean, this can happen in marriage, and that's not to say that the divorce or anything, those kind of difficulties are ever one-dimensional, but the same thing can happen in a friendship, in a workplace relationship, in a marriage, where, where you signed up, you knew it was going to require that you be a giver at times, and you're just kind of done being a giver, or you've watched someone be done being a giver. What, what, what happens? It can happen in volunteering, of course. Uh, you, you, did you know, uh, there's, and, and this is just one story, there's a couple that the second preview service we ever did at the Cinemark started teaching kids, Narek kids, and they're still doing it today. It occurred to me that next year uh, the, the, the senior class will have had them as teachers and Narek kids way back in elementary school. The question I want to ask is, why, why can some people be a big brother through, through big brothers, big sisters, or be a tutor at a school, or, or just be a kind, generous neighbor? Why can some do it over a lifetime, and the rest of us get hard and angry, and we just run out of gas? That's- do you have a biblical text that answers the question, why? I seriously doubt it. That's where I want to go. And, and to do so, uh, actually, there was some research conducted by two psychiatrists in Canada that I think can help us mightily. Their names are Jeremy Frimer and Larry Walker, not Larry Walker of the Colorado Rockies and St. Louis Cardinals, who should have made the Hall of Fame this last week, mind you, not that Larry Walker. He should be in, I'm just saying. He, he's a Hall of Fame material. 
But the Larry Walker, who's a psychiatrist in Canada. Now, these guys had this ambitious study that they recently completed where they wanted to know what are the unique motivations of givers versus not so much givers. Those who give it go for the lifetime versus those who don't. So to do so, what they did is they identified 25 recipients of the Caring Canadian Award, which is kind of funny. And if you're Canadian, I'm sorry. It's just kind of funny. Like the Caring Canadian Award. And what it- so this is a study based upon the personality types of people who won the Caring Canadian Award. What does this have to do with teaching all that Christ has commanded, making disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching? Have we been called as a church to go and find really fascinating, interesting studies and then glean from that that we may figure out the why or of, of what happens in society? It does is it's a, it's a lifetime achievement reward that they give out apparently annually to people who have uh, sustained a lifetime of giving. So, so these psychiatrists, they identified 25 of them, and they initially gave them all these questionnaires where they asked them to identify goals of theirs and then micro goals. They wanted to identify what kind of goals do these guys set and these gals set, and how do they go about achieving them. After the questionnaire, they individually, of course, over time, put them in rooms with psychiatrists and where, where they interviewed them for hours. They recorded all of them, video recorded all of them. Then they took 25 uh, corresponding people, uh, they, a comparison group of 25 people, a comparison group that they purposely made up of people who were of the same economic status, the same gender, the same education level. Uh, what else did I miss? The same ethnicity. And they asked these non Yeah, you missed a biblical text. We haven't gotten to that. And I don't think you're going to be able to shoehorn a text into this TED Talk. Award recipient people, uh, what are their goals? And they had them do the same questionnaire. They, gave, they went through the same interview process with these psychiatrists. Then they took that hours and hours of knowledge about these people, and they submitted it uh, to this independent board of raters. Not raters like the football team that suddenly will be in Las Vegas. Not those kinds of raters, but raters, like people who would rank them. And they said, will you rank them as it relates to what kind of ambition they have? And they're really interested in two categories. The first one was self-interest. Self-interest, they defined as power and achievement. So they wanted to go like, okay, those 50 people, how did they rank in self-interest? Then the other one was this. Go ahead to the next slide. Others' interest. They wanted to know, how did they rank in others' interest? Now, you're kind of going like, I didn't even need to come. I could have watched pregame for hours and hours because we already know like, kind of intuitively how this thing breaks down, right? The people who received the, the award recipients, of course, rated very, very high in others' interest. The non-reward recipients rated very, very high in self-interest. Their goals reflected like golf scores and personal appearance and things of that nature. But here's where the research got a little surprising. Surprised them, was shocking to me, and quite frankly, as a Christ follower, this information messes with me. Part of what I want to stress this morning is I want to start a conversation that I hope happens over, over halftime. I hope you, you want to start a conversation? Your job is to make disciples. You are off mission. You are out in the weeds. Hope it happens when you catch up on your next date night or your next small group or whatever it is you process things. Because especially as a Christ follower, this is messy. I think if, if you're not steeped in the scriptures, if you're not sure what to do about Jesus, if you're very foreign to church culture, this is much more intuitive. Is there anybody at Narrate Church steeped in the scriptures? Because Adam Hushka doesn't sound like he is. And I've never heard him exegete a biblical text and really have it firmly grounded and steeped 
in the scriptures. It makes much more sense to you, but for those of us who've been trying to follow Jesus, this is difficult. The surprising bit of information they learned was that the reward recipients, not only did they rate very high in self or in others' interest, they also rated very high in self-interest. So they, they thought there would be this dichotomy. Award recipients, others, non-award recipients, self. It's not what they found. What they found was that the non-award award recipients were very high in self and had very little, if any, other. And what they found was that the 25 Distinguished Lifetime Achievement Award winners, award winners had high amounts of both. In fact, Adam Grant, summarizing the research, he says it this way. The successful givers weren't just more other-oriented than their peers. They were also more self-interested. Successful givers, it turns out, are just as ambitious as takers and matchers. Now, part of the way they talk about this is by way of two continuums. And I think as Christ followers, if, if you'll analyze your thinking, the assumption is that there is a single continuum. Other, self-interest on one side, others on the other And as Christ followers, our goal is to gravitate further and further toward the others. What their research suggests, and this is crazy, it's challenging, I think it's shocking if you're a Christ follower, what their research suggests is it's... What's shocking is that you're not doing your job as a pastor. Your job is to preach the word. Read 2 Timothy 4 if you're uncertain about this. And you're off finding some study about, you know, generous Canadians and what they think about themselves, and somehow this is rocking your world? I, you, you can't make this stuff up. It just gets weirder by the day around here. It's a false dichotomy. There are two continuums. One where you rate high or low on self-interest. One where you rate high or low on others' interest. But the relationship isn't determined by the other. What they found is that takers... They're very high on, on, on self-interest, very low on others. But what they found is that givers, when they went beyond this 25 group, some of the givers are very high on both. Some are only high on others. In fact, you may remember when we kicked this whole conversation off. Here's some important words. Are you ready? So what? Who cares? Jesus said, As you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that I have commanded. You've got a body of work you're supposed to be teaching from, Adam, and it doesn't involve this study, and you're not supposed to go out and have conversations. You're supposed to preach the word. One of the initial studies that kind of predicated all of this is they they studied engineers, they they studied med students, and what they found consistently is that the very top performers were givers, and the very bottom performers were givers. Remember we talked about that the givers are either chumps, or they're they're either champs, or they're chumps. And the question is like, wait a minute, why why are some engineers who are givers, why are they the best in the office? Excuse me, and some are the least productive, they have the most errors, that they issue the fewest reports. Actually, what they're finding is the the question is answered by the ones that do or do not have any level of self-interest. Kind of messy. Uh, Bill Gates said at the 2008 World Economic Summit, because this is what I do for a hobby as I read the the transcripts of those things. Uh, Listen to this. He, He says, as I see it, there are two great forces of human nature, 
self-interest and caring for others. This hybrid engine, I love that phrase, this hybrid engine of self-interest and concern for others can serve a much wider circle of people than can be reached by self-interest or caring alone. So, again, so what? I mean, does Scripture tell us to not brush our teeth? Does Scripture tell us to not actually put our clothes on? Does Scripture tell us to just completely let ourselves go to seed? No, Scripture teaches that our life is a gift and that we are to steward the gift that God has given us in our life. How does Jesus put it? Love others as yourself? Yeah, there's a sense in which there is a biblical way of, you know, of loving yourself that is not narcissistic, you know, and so... um but I, why do I feel like we're not going to get a meaningful look at what God's word says as he's sitting here while his mind is blown, man? This study on Canadian award winners of their generosity, man, I'll never be the same. <sighs> Off mission. Christ follower, I guess the question I'm asking is what if the disciples were both? What, what if? What if? What if, what if they were? Oh, man. This, I mean, you could do a doctoral thesis on this maybe. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think you should drop out of being the vision-casting leader there, Adam, and, and maybe go back to the university and see if you can answer this question and hand the reins over there at Narrate Church to a guy who's going to faithfully exegete and proclaim and preach you know, God's word. I think you should go find the answer to this question. What if the best of the best, the heroes in the text, were were both? What what if we've created a false dichotomy? What if Mother Teresa, who, who died having written books and really created a national, international brand, what if we misunderstand her when we assume her to be this person who didn't have any self interest? Oh no! What if we got it wrong about Mother Teresa? Quick, stop the presses! Stop the presses! We've got to, we've, oh, we got to reevaluate everything. This is ridiculous. The coin, the, the, excuse me, the phrase that the researchers have coined that, that I think can be helpful and maybe even worth using is this phrase "other ish ambition." The way they talk. Uh, talk about the both end of this is that the that the, the highly productive givers they have both others and self. Now here's where as Christ followers I think we got to be careful. I think we got to be challenged. I think this involves a lot of conversation. I wish that I had months more uh, to think about this. I wish that I had time to have conversations with lots of you. I wish that in some of the context I found myself in this week. I wish you would knock this nonsense off and. Preach a biblical text in context and disciple these people in what Scripture says. I would have started conversations. I think this is messy, but I do think we got to look back at the text. Because remember, this is a rabbi who said, I didn't, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve others. We've built a movement, a church. We think that's what church is all about, is a bunch of people who meet Jesus and suddenly realize life isn't about them. But listen to some of the things that, that, that go on here. Listen to Mark. I just... Just one example, because what I found myself doing this week is going, and as I was preparing for this weekend, of going, <clears throat> wait, 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 wait a minute. Suddenly, maybe we're reading some stuff a little... Notice he's not actually proclaiming anything. He's just 
what if we got this wrong? What if, what if, what if he's musing or I don't know what he's doing, but he's not actually preaching or proclaiming. Differently. Sorry, Kim, I skipped context again. I did that to you last service. Let me give you a little context here. So there's this moment where the disciples, they're headed to Jerusalem. Jesus knows he's going to die. They think he's going to go be crowned king of a new government, literally. I mean, that's what they're picturing. Uh, so a couple of them come alongside Jesus and go, hey, when you get there, could, like, could we have the second biggest chair and the third biggest chair? Like, could we be right and left and you know, VP and secretary of state? And Jesus is like, you don't understand what you're asking about. Like, the, 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 those, those spots have been appointed. So it's not like they don't exist. But no, you can't just ask for them and get them. Well, then there's kind of a, I mean, it's like if you went up to your boss and said, hey, could I, could I, you know, be number two? And everybody else who works with you finds out that you're the newest one there and you're suddenly asking to be number two. There's, there's this turmoil that happens. There's some petty kind of infighting that happens. Jesus hears about it. And here's what he says. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. So we've talked about this, that Jesus is going, we do power differently. Listen to what he says next. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Question that, quite frankly, I didn't know to ask before I read this research. And I'll address the dangers of that in just a moment. Is Jesus squashing their desire for ambition? Is Jesus saying to them, it's wrong to want something? It's wrong. Is Jesus saying it's wrong to want to be great? Or is he redefining how one goes about that? Let's take a look at the cross-reference on that. I think this will be helpful. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. The, uh, the, the text in question, uh, it, let me find the beginning of it. Here it is. Uh, it's Luke 22, starting in verse 24. A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them will be regarded as the greatest. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. The youngest would, you know, think of it this way, you know, a family with six kids, right? Oldest is on, you know, has all the authority and has all the privileges, right? The youngest, I mean, isn't able to give orders to nobody. Maybe the cat, you know, but not to, you know, aside from that. Jesus says, no, you need to be like the youngest, the leader as one who serves or is the slave. For whoever is the greater, uh, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So here, here's the thing. You're looking at a Canadian study trying to figure out, well, how does this impact our understanding of do I live for myself or do I live for others? But the text you're going to in Mark has to do with literally the, the mindset that we serve others and Jesus holds himself up as the pinnacle example. So you need to be like the slave or the youngest. Uh-huh, that's what he's saying. The greatest among you will be that guy, the one who serves, for I am among you as the one who serves. And Jesus is speaking as none other than God in human flesh. And then the cross-reference to this to help understand the theology of what is being referred to here is uh, found in Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, here's what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was by nature God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's the issue. Even the text that he's now making some allusion to and he's not even exegeting or proclaiming isn't really even on topic with the thing that he's discussing in this TED Talk. Could it be that that this Jesus understands that that people, employees, kids, friends, Christ followers who want nothing can do very little good? But people who want too much and sometimes for the wrong reasons – can be redirected. Could it be? Could it be? You're, you're comparing apples and oranges here. That the wind can, in a sense, be redefined. It's a, to me, it's a thought we have to think about. Now, I have to admit that this, in a hermeneutics kind of standpoint, from a Bible interpretation standpoint, it's dangerous to start with an idea and go to the Bible. And that's, frankly, exactly what I'm doing here. Right, yeah, and the the thing that you know is the danger, you've already committed it. That's the problem. There's this sociological study that I go, whoa, that rocks everything I believe in and everything I valued and everything I've... T- yeah, sociological studies are not where we get biblical doctrine from or Christian doctrine from. So you're letting this sociological study inform your theology. Todd, and everything I've considered and everything I've made my own personal goal, it's dangerous to go to the text with the idea and looking to support it. And yet conversely, I think if we're honest, we have to recognize nobody concluded that, that slavery was outside of God's best by reading the Bible. Like that, that's-, um, that's weird because there is an actual biblical prohibition against enslavers in uh, the, uh, the New Testament. Let me find it here real quick. Uh, let's see. I need to expand my search because I, I didn't have this. Right off the top of my head, let me go New Testament. There we go. First um, Timothy chapter one. First mm-hmm. Timothy chapter one. There is a list, and let me read it for you. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I'm chapter one, verse eight. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy, the profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality enslavers uh-huh those who take someone captive in order to sell them yeah enslavers are actually yeah it says that yeah i bring all that up because what he just said about somehow uh slavery not being god's best you don't get that from reading the bible actually you do get it if you read the Bible carefully, and it was Christians, because of their understanding of the Bible, that led to the abolition of slavery. It's not, the Apostle Paul died being a a supporter of slavery. Yeah, that's not exactly true. It's one thing to say, listen, slavery is in effect, you know, you're a slave, enslave, obey your master, that you can somehow do your good works as a Christian, even in the vocation of slave. It's one thing to say that, and it's a whole other thing to say, I'm, hey, listen, that slavery thing, I'm all for it. 
I think you're going to look long and hard and find that Paul was not in favor of slavery. And he would not have recognized the slavery that that came to be in the United States in the 19th century. Now, he wouldn't have understood that at all. That That's just some nasty wickedness uh, here. And the enslavers that he condemns in 1 Timothy chapter 1 Oh, they would have, you know, all of the 19th century in, you know, racial slavery people would, they would have come under the condemnation of that. So, yeah, no, he's not even correctly understanding Paul. But understand this, Paul considered himself a slave to those who he served. Yeah, we continue. And part of what you have to reconcile as a Christ follower, if you are one, and as a person who sees the authority and inspiration of the text as valuable, if you are one, is what happened there? See, what, what we have to begin to acknowledge is sometimes co- there's some cultural constraints that are simply unavoidable. Sometimes we have to kind of come at it from a little bit different direction. We could say the same thing. There were people who died in the Middle Ages for, for believing that the earth wasn't the center of the known universe. When it was first suggested that it, that it wasn't, people were dying over signing themselves under that banner, believing in that idea. Why? Because the Bible in some obscure ways, says that the earth is the center of the universe. It took some bold people to go, wait a minute, maybe the Bible's not trying to be a physics book. And maybe sometimes when science... Yeah, it sounds to me like you're reading theological liberals because these are all their arguments. Science identifies things. It actually helps us better understand the heart of God. Maybe sometimes God is behind those scientific findings. Now, I'm not claiming to be the Apostle Paul, and I'm not putting this one next to, uh, you know, astronomy, all those different aspects. Slavery, I mean, those are big things. Now, understand, this, the, these arguments that he just gave, these are the theological liberals' arguments. I've seen these exact arguments at Biologos, at Emergent Village, when it was a thoroughgoing thing. And here's how these arguments were used in order to defend evolution. See, apparently science has proven that evolution is true. No, they haven't. Uh, far, 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 far from it. And so that, you know, we got to understand that the, the, the creation is some kind of a cultural thing, you know. Uh-huh. Hushka's reading liberals. But, but consider this. When Jesus, the great commandment, the one that we celebrate, when he said, love your neighbor, what did he say? Did he say, love your neighbor? As yourself. Next slide. What if, what if Jesus was fully aware that... Or maybe we could say it this way. What if, what if, what if? Yeah, this is not proclamation. This is deconstruction. This is what the devil did in the uh, in the Garden of Eden. Jacob? Ever read the narrative of Jacob? If you haven't, I recommend it. It's perturbing and frustrating and beautiful all at the same time. He stole his birthright from his older brother. He, he later manipulated his father-in-law to get his second wife. I mean, Jacob was... No, actually, Esau sold his birthright for a cup of stew. Yeah, and uh, and the Lord Himself said that uh, that the older would serve the younger even before they were born. So yeah, you you're not correctly understanding the story of Jacob. I would point you to my ramblings on Genesis, where I work through this, you know, the the Genesis text on this was kind of a conniving guy, and you're not sure you'd want to do business with Jacob. David had an affair with a woman, and then arranged to have her husband killed in war so he could marry her. Now, I'm not celebrating that. But could it be that that some of the heroes in the text are heroes because they wanted things, and God found a way to redirect energy? The Apostle Paul... (laughs) 
Um, yeah, David didn't have some major energy redirection. <laughs> he was actually disciplined by God. Wow. This is so bizarre. And this is what happens when you let your brain govern your doctrines rather than open up the word of God and let your b- brain be transformed and renewed by the word of God. Oh, he was on his way to being the next great rabbi of Israel. And while he says it was all rubbish, he was pursuing excellence. He was very selfishly motivated. He had lots of self-interest. Is it any coincidence that God used him to write over half the New Testament? Yeah, again, you just seem to be hell-bent, and that's the right way of describing this, on ignoring what these texts say. Now, he made an allusion to Philippians chapter 3, without actually reading the text. And when you read it, it won't fit what he's trying to do. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them, all of his good works under Judaism, as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, the text he just made an allusion to is not teaching, oh, well, see, the reason why Christ chose Paul is because, you know, he was really good at looking out for himself. He had the right kind of ambition that God was looking for. No, See, he started with his sociological study, and now he's twisting the word of God to try to make it fit his study. And the text I just quoted that he alluded to is talking about the difference between righteousness that is earned by your law-keeping as opposed to the free gift of the righteousness of God that is given by grace through faith. That's the point of Philippians chapter 3. Let me back up just a smidge. We continue. Is it any coincidence that God used him to write over half the New Testament to redirect that energy? See, what I'm trying to do here from a Christ follower standpoint is maybe we over-spiritualize this at times. Maybe serving God involves also wanting things for ourselves. There's another instance that stands out to me where, where Jesus says some things to the disciples that, again, I'm just admitting, I didn't see it this way before the research, but it's challenging the way I think about it. Yeah, so the research is totally messing up your understanding of the Bible because you're reading the Bible through the lens of that sociological study, which is just preposterous on its face. Uh, Go ahead to that next slide. In in Mark 10, Jesus says this to the guys. uh, He says, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Where am I supposed to be? 1029. So either you're wrong or I'm wrong. 
Oh yeah, truly I tell you, uh, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields, and let's slip along, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, I kind of mess with you, because is Jesus squashing here their desire to have things? Stands out to me that they're all kind of going like, man... We've left, the the thing before this is Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus goes, yeah, but good news. You're going to get, there's lots in it for you. There's a place in 1 Timothy, I I think one of the most important texts on the way we. Yeah, don't forget eternal life, new earth. We think about our resources. Uh, We did a whole series from this in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, this, This is messy too. Listen to what Paul says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You can do your own study. Question, having had two seconds to think about it. Is God condemning wealth in this text? Is he saying those people who have more than everybody else, tell them to knock it off? I, 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 don't, I don't see it. It's like Paul knows there's people who have more. Listen to the follow-up. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Yeah, as opposed to hoarding it and keeping it all to themselves. You know, I, because of the work I, I, I do, uh, I, of course, interact with people all over the socioeconomic scale. And while I don't look at who gives what, it's sometimes kind of obvious where different people are at. You know what I've learned about wealthy people in my eight years of doing this? I, I didn't know this. I... Uh, I have a blue-collar dad from a blue-collar family, and you know, you know what I've learned about six-figure, seven-figure income-earning people? They outwork me, almost to a one. I'm not, I'm not saying this is true of all. What I've learned is there's some... Are we done now with God's Word? I'm just asking, because uh, we didn't really get any biblical texts in context. Everything was kind of proof-texted out of context, to kind of go with your sociological survey as you muse your way around. Some of the hardest working people who want things and some of the most generous people I've ever met. It's one of the most humbling things I go through when people who, who work more hours in their profession than I do show up and run a vacuum cleaner on Sunday morning. What if, what if God, what if, what if, what if, what if? What if you read the text and stopped with the what-ifs? Part of the way we explain the 12 disciples and the women who were part of that crew, why they got such a special place versus all the other masses who didn't. This is the scripture silent here, but what if part of the deal was Jesus was siphoning off guys who wanted enough to at times get themselves in trouble and sound selfish? What if there's both? And what that would mean... A lot of work, I think, for all of us. Differentiating, okay, so how far is selfish? And how far is God honoring? And how do we balance this out? That would be the New Testament. A God who's going, this doesn't happen overnight. We got to work this out in relationship. Just for your consideration. Second thing, uh, second thing here we, is, is so, so there's this one, like, how do people not run out of gas? They actually have self-interest. The other one is, is if we haven't raised up enough controversy, uh, is, is successful givers, they count. 
And you're like, well, I thought Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Yeah, and he also said that if your eye is causing you to stumble, pluck it out. So apparently there's some metaphor going on here. Givers who give over the long haul count. Here, here's one example of this. There was a, uh, apparently one of the highest paying jobs at most universities is that in the call center. So these universities have call centers where they, uh, they employ students. About the only thing I'm learning is that he has a very, very postmodern approach to things. He's very postmodern. That's about the only thing I'm learning from this. To call alumni and raise funds for scholarships and building funds and things like that. Well, Adam, Adam Grant's crew got called into a university because the administration was frustrated that their call center was being so incredibly unproductive. And so they hired him as a consultant and his team came in to analyze what was going on there. Now, he assumed heading into it that what he was going to find was that the giver were doing okay and the takers were just taking the paycheck and doing nothing else. His research actually said the opposite, that the takers were the ones that were productive and the givers were so unmotivated they were doing very little. Why unmotivated? He began to wonder, maybe it's the lack of story. Maybe it's the lack of tangible impact. He had an idea and so he said to them, let's try this. Why don't we give the entire staff a story? Let's find an email, an authentic, real email that came in from a real student who got a real scholarship, and let's just share it with them and see what happens. And they identified this email. It was just a short paragraph from a woman who graduated from the university, whose mother and grandfather had also graduated from the university, who wasn't going to get to attend the university because she's now out of state, and, and, and therefore she wasn't able to afford it. But the scholarship made it possible. Instantly, the givers caught up to the takers in their phone calls. week later, they said, okay, let's double down on that idea. Let's do a face-to-face. They brought in a real person, real, same deal, a real recipient of a real scholarship made possible by real phone calls made to alumni. They brought in this person, brought the entire call staff in to listen to this person's story. Guess what happened? Skyrocketed. Within a week, the number of calls per shift doubled. Within a week, the average return on investment, the average employee went from raising $400 a week to $2,000 a week. What is that? It's story. And if we're not careful, we make ourselves feel guilty for needing one. In my sector, there's this thing that happens. Like, you are a really spiritual person if you don't know how many people... I don't even know what he's talking about. So I feel guilty because I need a story. What? I have a story. It's the story of Christ, who's God in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary suffers under Pontius Pilate, it's crucified, died, buried, you know, stuff like that. People attend on a weekend. Why? Well, because it's, it's insincere. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. I, I was ironically meeting with a friend this week who's trying to figure out whether or not uh, to go to two services at, at his church because he, he said they're packed. And I was like, well, how many does your space hold? And he told me, I said, well, how many people are attending? He's like, I don't know. Like, how do you not know? Because I don't count. And that's this like, oh, so yeah, you, you're doing it right. To which you go, yeah, and you don't even know whether or not you can serve people better by knowing. And that's not to criticize him. He's coming from his own kind of toxic background. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I'll bet you there's this kind of thing where you're not supposed to talk about that. There's some research that's been done recently uh, out of the uh, University of Cal Berkeley where a psychiatrist is now saying uh, that she can quantify that the profession in uh, the United States that has the highest rate of burnout is teachers. Teachers has the highest rank. The secret? Well, the group uh, Teach for America, which if you're not familiar... Uh, so back, back to study time. We're, we're just looking at the results of different sociological studies. Wow, that's... 
Yeah, see, Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing, teaching all that I've commanded. I mean, notice how little of the word of God we got. And it was always in the context of, well, what if, what if, what if, what if we didn't really, uh, what if, what if? Yeah, I, like I said, I think we're done. Maybe there's no more Word of God in this sermon. Teach for America takes college graduates, often from Ivy League schools, takes them from these middle-class, upper-class backgrounds, and after graduating college, puts them in an inner-city school. Uh, one teacher that I read about, uh, she, she graduated, uh, she, she went to a school in Philadelphia where uh, there were 1,200 students at this high school. 500 of them had been suspended at some point in their high school tenure. 54% from that high school graduate. It's 98% uh, African-American. She's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman. She showed up, and within no time, she burned out. And that's, that's typical. And Teach for America, uh, the average Teach for America uh, worker makes it, uh, what is it? It's 50% of them make it past their second contract. Uh, 80, 50% of them are done after two years, excuse me. 80% of them are done after three years. A full one-third of them leave the profession entirely after their Teach for America experience. So, of course, that's bad for business. And so they're going like, what, what are the secrets? What are the ones who don't burn out? What do they do? Guess what they do? They come, they come up with ways to count. In one case, and it seems like there's a theme on this one, what they do is they, they teach in these classrooms with very difficult circumstances. There was one girl who was burning out in this Philadelphia high school. She asked what to do. You know what their recommendation was? Find a tutoring center and volunteer for five hours. So a person who's dog-tired, they're saying give more. What she did was she found a volunteering center that worked with low-economic, high-achieving students. Guess what? It gives her something to count. She can see some progress I suspect, don't you, that the teachers around here uh, who have started the breakfasts at the middle schools, it's part of what's going on, don't you think? Some kind of tangible, countable, I can see I'm making an impact. There was another study that involved radiologists in Israel. Uh, they, they took these radiologists, and they gave them six months after they had read an initial radiology report, they gave them the same reports back. Now they did- Yeah, I just did a study myself. I did a study on um, those Christians who hear about studies during sermons rather than the Word of God and how effective they are, how well, how effective that technique is to actually making disciples. And my study results showed that, well, the Word of God is living and active, that all studies, none of them are the Word of God and are incapable of producing and bearing the fruit of the Spirit in people's lives. So uh, teaching studies instead of the Word of God, my study shows that that way of approaching discipleship doesn't result in actual disciples. It's ineffective. Yeah, that's what my study shows. I'll write up some kind of you know academic journal article on the results of my study sometime in the future. You know, they didn't know. That's why they waited six months. But they changed one thing about the file. What, guess what they changed? In half the files, they put a photo of the person whose radiology report they were reading. The accuracy rate went up fifty three percent. What is that? Oh, it's suddenly connected to people. It's suddenly, I can see the difference. There's a woman who's a part of this community who I asked her permission to share this story. Is a barista at a coffee shop about a week before Christmas watched a dad and, and two boys walk in, and it was very clear that they were on very hard times. When no one was looking, she loaded up a, a $25 gift card with her own money. She wasn't stealing it. She sidled up to the next of the dad and in ways that she tried her hardest to protect his dignity said, hey, here, here's a gift card. We have all kinds of food. You can bring your kids back here and, and get a meal. 
Christmas Day rolls around. One of her family members was working, so they went down there to visit. They're standing off in the corner visiting. Guess who walked in the door? Guess who bought Christmas breakfast with her gift card? How motivated do you suppose she is to keep going? Listen, I don't know in what ways you're trying to give through your vocation, through a place like this. The research would say you have to find ways to count, to make it tangible. That's why we try to put Hannah up here and tell stories. That's why we talk about giving reports on occasion. It's stories to be told. You know, in Hebrews... Yeah, what's weird, though, is the story of Christ. The stories from the Bible, they're not being told. One of the primary purposes of gathering together, because 2,000 years ago, they were struggling with, we're struggling with, like, do I go or do I watch pregame? And, and the way Hebrews talks about the importance of the gathering is, is all of this stuff. In Hebrews uh, 3, go ahead to that next slide. I'm just, it says this, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Listen, if being a part of this community as a Christ follower doesn't motivate you to continue to give, then please find a place that does. The text would say we've got to see and have tangible feedback. Yeah, the text says to actually preach the text, rightly handle it. We didn't get that. We got smatterings out of context to conform with your sociological survey. The third thing, and I'll just be a moment on this one, is this idea of chunking Versus sprinkling. Now, another research. Chunking. <laughs> I've heard that in the corporate world. Never heard it in a sermon before. And the reason why is because the sermons, I, I would come to think of it, I haven't even heard it in a secret driven sermon. But okay, yeah. Um, it's this is chunking is not taught in the Bible, just saying. Uh, thing that they did, they wanted to know what's more fulfilling to give a whole bunch in an isolated kind of space of time, or to give a little bit every day. And so they took a group of people, and for extended weeks, they asked um, one group, they said, pick a day this week and do five random acts of kindness for somebody. To the other group, they said, do five random acts of kindness over the course of the week. They followed that out for weeks, and then they, they traced the research. Uh, remember, we talked about that guy who did the flow theory and invented a whole new way of sampling people where they're getting kind of real-time feedback. How do people feel right now? They did that with these people. Guess who was more fulfilled in their giving? The chunkers or the sprinklers? It's actually the chunkers. Now, don't call somebody that because they might get the wrong idea. <laughs> Those people who, who, who kind of went like, okay, for the next four hours, man, this is what we're doing. They actually had more energy to continue. Now, I wasn't looking for this, but to be honest with you, whoa, it was pretty satisfying when I read that because I went like, we, we've built a whole movement on that. that that's, that's what we've said from day one is like, we don't really like church that much. So let's gather on Sunday and work really hard to create these contexts. And then let's get the heck out of here for the other six days and occasionally serve people together. But let's just do it that way. Like, let's work really hard and concentrated time and then move on and serve people organically. I wonder if that's why we've got people, many of you are among them, who've you've been plotting for, for years. Listen, if you're someone that's wanting to connect around here, that's the way we roll. We go, you want to meet people? Great, come serve with us. You want to matter? Great, come give us a few hours, a couple hours. Sometimes not even that. Maybe you're somebody who's burning out because you've 
Yeah, and this sermon's causing me to experience burnout. Taking the expectation to be a servant to such a degree that it's not even sustainable. It, it can't be lived. So again, this morning, what I want to do is start a conversation. Remember, we started with... Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you did. You started. A con- you didn't preach the word, but you started a conversation. Why do some people run out of gas and others don't? Like, why do some go a lifetime? Why are there teachers who are in their 24th year and they still love students? The research would suggest they found ways to also be self-motivated. They chunk... They don't sprinkle, and they've given themselves permission with dignity to somehow identify ways to count. So make sure that you chunk, don't sprinkle, so that you can stay motivated, yeah. Rather than pray and sing our way out of here, I'm going to ask you to stand. I thought it would be fun to sing, to this, not sing, to say the Lord's Prayer together. So will you stand, and we're going to end with this. So they're going to end with the Lord's Prayer, yeah. That'll baptize this message and make it look like it's Christian. There was nothing biblical or Christian about it. What a mess. I mean, what is causing this? That it was, all these people have become utterly, well, bored with the Word of God that they wake up on a Sunday morning. They'd rather go to a place called a community where they do life together and do some chunking. Um, while listening to the results of particular mind-blowing sociological surveys rather than hearing the stories from the Word of God. Yeah, just more signs of crazy apostasy. That's all I can say. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.